Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter.com or Blue Sky at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter, Blue Sky, or Instagram at Scavendish. If you like the show, the one you're listening to right now, please rate it, review it, or subscribe to it. Uh, but more importantly, tell somebody you know that you listen to Lamestream Sports, and they should too. Uh, big announcement coming up in just a second. Really excited uh, about this uh, said announcement. On the show today, David Ubbin going to join us from The Athletic. We do this sort of every year where we look at the college football playoff. We dive into sort of a, a guy with a tie to the region. Of course, still living in Tennessee, used to be on the Tennessee beat, but has been covering the national game across college football. We talk about the month of December being broken. We talk about covering the Sugar Bowl, the college football playoff, what's next for football. And that's right, Steve. Nico Iamaleava, of course, the starting quarterback for your Tennessee Volunteers. So we'll get to that. We also will touch on the uh, Mike Vrabel and Rand Carthon sort of stories that continue to leak the smoke that's out there. Following our interview with David, uh, Steve, we'll talk about this. There's a couple of like rules of engagement for folks to remember, uh, motivations, uh, things like that. So we'll get to that following, and we'll wrap up the show with that. And we will start today with uh, a look at some of the TV ratings for the college football playoff games, the semifinals. Uh, since that part of our sport is over, Steve, the college football semifinals in a four-team era will never happen again. So, uh, Thank God. We, Kill it. Make <laughs> it go away. I don't know. These last two years, uh, spectacular games. Uh, four straight really good national. It only took eight years to get there, but we had two, four really great games, including two this year. Uh, that being said, Steve, before we get started, Lamestream Sports is a podcast about Nashville sports media and business, and it is brought to you by eighth and roast oh eighth and roast what's that steve eighth and roast is one of the is one of the best places you can go to grab coffee grab you know do a little work uh i, I have i have done both of those things uh <laughs> you know grab a snack if you're a coffee if you're a coffee fan and and you get concerned particularly like uh about how your coffee gets to you because the coffee growing world, not known for its uh, great labor practices or uh, in general ethical. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm waiting for the John Oliver episode when he ruined chocolate. I'm waiting for him to ruin know, coffee I for know. me as well. But um, th there's been there's been a lot of work in this area here over the last few years. One of the things I love about Eighth and Roast is kind of their commitment to paying decent wages for not just what what are so called fair trade prices, but above that for their providers in order to have a partnership where you're not taking advantage of someone particularly in a poor other you know in a poorer country in order to get a product and then on top of all that it's a great product if you if you care about coffee they roast their own beans it is it is some of the best coffee it is some of the best coffee you'll find and you know I, I I've used their products for a long time I'm a fan I've got so, and of course, they've got a great location over on 8th as well as Charlotte. They're in the airport as well. But most importantly, for all you listening in the Middle Tennessee area, you can get them all across the county and across the city and the area at grocery stores. I go to my local Publix, of course, and pick up a bag. Uh, the Whole Beans, of course, as you mentioned, uh, we acquire, quote, we acquire only the best quality coffee and maintain this standard all the way through the roasting process. 8th and Roast is committed to a culture of excellence in sourcing and stocking the freshest and most ethically traded coffee Possible, of course, founded locally here in 2009. Uh, I've got the Jet Setter currently because my wife refuses to drink coffee any other way but in our pot. Not with those little pods or those little cups where all the lines get dirty and disgusting I, and gross. I always knew I liked her. 
we brew only like literally we've only drank coffee at our house with an actual pot so i get the beans i do the grinding i throw it in it takes five extra seconds to do it but it's worth it because your product will be better i've got the jet setter currently which has got some uh tasting notes of candied pecan blackberry and maple syrup that's just one of many that they have so check them out at your local grocery store and of course great places to go get some work done grab a little breakfast sandwich as well eighth and roast and if you're in the airport flying in and out of town They've got a location in the airport, so go check them out. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the pod, 8th and Roast. There we go. I can't emphasize this enough. I cannot emphasize this enough. Having 8th and Roast in the airport, fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I don't have to, I don't have to go to Starbucks. Uh, I can I can buy from somebody local, and I can get a better product. It's fantastic. I, there, okay, two things. Are there any, are there, how many smells are better than freshly ground like good coffee beans before they go into the, the pot, the filter. Very few things that smell better than that. Very few things. And how many cups of coffee do you think we are on per day on this show between the two of us? What's the over uh, under? I don't know. I, I, I might've lost count. I mean, I'm kind of like a three cup in the morning per day guy. <laughs> it's getting more every with age. <laughs> I, so. I'm trying to, I'm trying to limit my intake and savor. And so, so yeah. my numbers, my number is down, but, but but I appreciate I appreciate the quality. I'm probably yeah. I w- I think the over under might be six and a half for the two of us on a per day basis. <laughs> so there you have it. Okay, so we're gonna talk about Arch Manning. We're gonna talk Michael Penix. We're gonna talk Washington, Michigan. Jim Harbaugh, Nico, all kinds of great stuff uh, with David Ubbin. But I uh, wanted to say thanks to Eighth and Roast, our brand new sponsor here on Lamestream Sports. Uh, okay, quickly the TV ratings for the college football playoff game. The third highest college football playoff semifinal in the history of the 10 years. And the only two that were better were the first two, which of course newness was a big factor in those two games. Ohio state, Alabama pulled 28.2 million people in 2014. I was actually at that game, Oregon and Florida state, 2014, 28.1 million Michigan and Alabama outdoor on grass, the way God intended it at the Rose bowl, 27.2 million viewers. That is the third highest rated semifinal game period and again the only one uh georgia oklahoma the other great rose bowl overtime game pulled a 26.9 those are the only two semifinals that came close over the 10 years to competing with the first two and i think a big factor in those first two not only was the ohio state upset of alabama but the fact that it was just the first year and i think a lot of people were watching it on the for the first time and that was a big part of those ratings numbers uh the washington and texas game pulled an 18.4 which would be 15th out of the total 20 games that were played. Not that great. So late. The second half kicked off at 11.05 p.m. Eastern time. And um, people had to work. Kids cannot stay up that late. It's just, it is what it is. I was actually with family in the Eastern time zone watching this game. Uh, That was was a tough watch. Uh, That was a tough watch after we had been up late the night before. Uh, it, It is just... It, it was just it's too late for 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 this stuff and part of it and part of it is because of the stupid rose bowl well the rose bowl could have gone one hour earlier yes that would have eaten into nico time but it would have gone a little bit you could have started an hour earlier and then the sugar bowl could have started an hour earlier and then seven o'clock west coast ten o'clock for halftime at the east coast that's manageable but not 11 o'clock on the east coast one o'clock yeah. is too late 1 a.m is too late on new year's day for a championship game. And again, in, with an ending where Texas had four shots at the end zone to win the game. 
assholes at the Rose Bowl committee have to have their their three <laughs> their third quarter sunset pictures and and so you have to have the kickoff when they have it and it's 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 insane here's how we letting solve the, the let, letting the Rose Bowl govern govern these sorts of things absolutely ridiculous if you want to read a great piece about it uh there's a there's a piece in the Washington Post this week by Stephen Godfrey that just puts a bullet in this yeah. whole thing uh, the the way you could sort of like serve it up to them and get them to like, by the way, hilarious, by the way, that the only thing that forces them to move instantly is the NFL. The NFL yeah. is like, oh, we're on a Sunday. You have to move. And then they move to January 2nd real fast. It's <laughs> the only thing that makes them move is the NFL. But I don't know. Just give them the championship game every year. Just stop fighting the fight. Say you're not going to be on New Year's Day anymore. You're going to be back on like January 10th or something on a Saturday and give it to them and say, you get the national championship game every year. It's one of the greatest settings to, to host a game. The College World Series is in Omaha every year. It works great. You got the Softball World Series in, in Oklahoma City every year. Works great. You don't have to, to spin it around the country in these massive, cavernous, void of character and charm, neutral site buildings. Put it at least in a place that people love. And I guarantee part of the reason that Alabama, Michigan, like that was a sloppy football game. It, you, it was you, it was a great game, but part of the reason is because the Rose Bowl draws attention. It's what it is. It's still special. Did, did you hear that, Scott Ramsey? Braden just sold out your uh, college football <laughs> national true, championship game. Sorry, Good job, Scott. Braden. Sorry, Scott. Okay, after it comes to Nashville once, go to make it this permanent spot in in no. the championship game. Okay, no. All right, uh, Michigan and Washington will face off. Those are the t those are the ratings, though. Um, interestingly enough, of course, the highest rated championship game. By the way. Uh, and this will be interesting. I don't know if we're going to come close to these numbers. Michigan's a big brand. If it's a close game, that tends to be the most decide, the biggest deciding factor in ratings for a championship game. Uh, but the Ohio State Oregon game, again, the newness factor here, thirty one point thirty four point one million back in twenty fourteen. Bama Georgia, which is the only one to go to overtime, twenty eight point four million. Bama Clemson twenty fifteen, which is very close, uh, twenty six million. LSU Clemson was not that close, twenty five million. So. I don't know if they're going to get to that 25, 26 million unless it is a very close game and Michael Penix is doing something special, you know, on offense, which I think is very, very possible. So we'll have to see what factors play a role in the viewership on Monday night. I, I hope that the I hope that the average fan looks up and says, oh, thank God, Bama and Georgia are not in this game. Uh, I, I'm going to tune in to I'm going to tune in to see what it is. I think there's a, I think there's a there's a better than average chance that that happens. And the South will always watch, even if it's two Big Ten teams in the championship game. All right. Uh, enough from Steve and I. Here was our conversation with great college football writer and uh, story man, storyteller from The Athletic, David Ubbin. David, welcome to the show, my friend. Always great to have you. Always great to see you. How are you, sir? I am good. Uh, always good uh, to chat with you guys. And it's uh, the most compelling Sad, complicated time of the year. Yes, uh, I'm myself and other people who cover college football are about to get our lives back, but we're about to have it uh, happen with no college football. So it's at least at this time of year, I'm all, it's always a little bit of complicated feelings. I always feel great the week after championship week because it's like the grind is done and you still got some great football ahead. But this time of year, you know, getting ready to take some time off, but you're like, but football's done. So uh, I. I don't know, David, if you've covered college football the last few years, uh, but January through July hasn't exactly been quiet <laughs> in our sport. <laughs> it has not, but it's usually stuff I don't really want to cover, like uh, Board of Regents meetings ah, and, okay. uh, you know, reading through legal briefs and, 
yelling about Supreme Court decisions. It's not the most <laughs> compelling stuff. I prefer uh, self-immolating mascots and uh, <laughs> insane uh, decisions on the field and bad snaps. These are the things I enjoy covering. Uh, Bre- not- breakfast toasteries, toasties yes. coming coming out of. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. OK, so w- I'm going to be a part of the problem then right away. Let's do uh, it. Because you were at the Washington-Texas game. I want to talk through sort of your uh, evolution of, through your career, getting to where you are now, mm-hmm. going from sort of like the Big 12 to like Knoxville, back to the national beat. Uh, we're going to get into that. And I've got some questions about a particular young quarterback in Knoxville that I'm required legally <laughs> to ask you about. But I yes. want to start with like part of the problem, uh, and I'm going to be part of the problem, which is Arch Manning. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you There was a great football game a very fascinating layered story with Texas coming to the SEC in its last game as a Big 12 team with Steve Sarkeesian against his former team, two great offenses, like just all these stories. And and it, and it seemed like Arch Manning captivated the media leading into the game. And again, as part of the problem here, I'm acknowledging my self-awareness. Um, <laughs> how, how, how real was all the interest in Arch Manning as opposed to Quinn Ewers or the Texas storyline or... Just how how much oxygen did he, in fact, take up leading up to the game? There's a lot of other stuff going on at the bowl games. Uh, I would I would push back and say, I don't know that he captivated the media. I think he captivates people for a number of reasons. Uh, I am a big believer in. Well, I say I'm a big believer. It's a fairly accepted concept that scarcity creates demand. And it's not just that he's the number one recruit in the last class. It's not just that his last name is Manning. It's, you know, you're at Texas, but he hadn't, he, his recruitment was very unique. He didn't do a lot of social media. He did. I thought the number was like six or seven interviews throughout literally his entire recruitment. Whereas most guys do that in like a day or a week. (laughs) I thought the number was six or seven. I asked some colleagues who covered his recruitment a little bit closer. It was more like three, three interviews the entire time that he was in recruiting. He was being recruited. It was very low-key recruitment. His family kind of protected him. His high school coach protected him because they know that this demand is here. Um, And he hadn't talked since he'd been at Texas. And the last time he did an interview was like 18 months. Like it was well before he committed. He didn't talk to anybody after he committed. So when there's that little of an opportunity to talk to a guy where there's that much demand, people care about Arch Manning. It's not like a media thing. Like people care about him. They ask about him. Um, they do all this stuff about him. It's it's um, you know, we're in Tennessee. It's not quite uh, you know, it's certainly a, a much more intense version of the Nico stuff. But even if he's not playing, people care. Um, and there's a lot of mystery around like, how does all this work? How does he feel about everything? And he just hadn't really talked. And I don't he he kind of was prepared. He said he talked to Archie kind of the day before about it, but he wasn't sure if he was allowed to answer questions because he sat down. He was like and like he got mobbed by like 20 people, myself included. Now, to be fair, I wasn't really doing a lot of Texas stuff at the game. I was mostly doing Washington because we had our expert there. And we had Max Olson, who has a lot of um, Texas um, experience as well. So I was kind of doing more in Washington. I spent a lot of time in the Pac-12 footprint this year watching Pac-12. So they had to do more in-depth Texas stuff so I can just stand there and talk to Arch, basically. Um, so I just wrote about you know what, what all Arch said. Um but yeah, he kind of sat down and was like, am I allowed to talk? And we quickly informed him that, yes, you are. Uh, and that's sort of the beauty of some of these New Year's Six games, because college football is better when the personalities and the people that people care about get to talk. And for a lot of programs, 
You can't talk to the freshmen. Uh, even star players don't get to talk very often, and it hurts the sport. If a kid makes a crucial mistake, good luck talking to him for another six weeks until that mistake blows over. Um, a lot of times, you know, I mean, you think about the the you know the, the Johnny football thing. He's taking the sport over by storm, and he doesn't get to talk to the media for a long time. This is not. This is more the rule than the exception, and I think yep. somewhat it's changing with NIL, but the idea that you, quote, need to, quote, unquote, build your brand by talking to the media in the age of collectives is kind of an, a misnomer in some ways where it's like, eh, it doesn't really matter all that much. If you play, you're going to get paid. So uh, I don't think it was a bad thing. I don't think – like I think people want to – believe that oh the people are more obsessed with arch than quinn quinn talked the day before for like 20 minutes i talked to him a lot of people talked to him like when all the media had been there a day before and talked to quinn and gotten that out of the way and then arch is available the next day and the swarm is sort of going to happen um and so i you know i think people there's a lot of context around this that i think people don't necessarily understand a lot of the things that i just explained and so it was always going to happen we were prepared for it during the week we had a plan for it we knew it was going to happen and um this is a product much like the madness in college football of the decision making and the operating um the way just the way the sport operates that that situations like that are going to happen because that's the only chance that you're probably going to get to talk to arch especially if quinn comes back you might not have to talk to Arch again for another year, literally. So I it's fine. And 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 by the way, just to wrap it up, and and by the way, when you say people care about Arch, you're you're not just talking about media and coaches and fans, like no. you're talking about clicks on the website. Yes, people care. Uh, you know, we he made his debut against Texas Tech earlier this year, and one of my colleagues wrote about it, and it was like one of the most read things on our site for like two days. And it was like, you know, Arch came into the game through two passes it was just like writing what happened it wasn't really like a he, he tied his left cleat he tied his left yeah. cleat right over to left and then he tied his like, right cleat left over right it was just like he came in the game this is what happened against texas tech because it was notable because he played it wasn't i mean he was writing from home it wasn't like you know i don't know that the pulitzer committee won't call my guy sam Khan. maybe they will uh for this piece um but it was pretty much just like what happened um so people care this is not yeah. a media thing this is a people care about this who this dude is and everything that he does you, you were out covering the rose bowl this past week and, and that's got a big sugar bowl i'm sorry Steve. i'm sorry <laughs> sorry you're you out covering the sugar bowl this week and <laughs> both both the semifinal games the sugar and the rose have big run-ups to them you get them you have a couple days there mm -hmm. ahead of time but here going into the national championship you you don't have a nearly as much run-up as you did before i mean i think the teams are coming in what like day before or two probably, days before probably tomorrow maybe some today i'm not yeah. sure i'm not going down there it's actually kind of a scheduling quirk because so we figured this out because we do our coaching confidential uh myself and bruce feldman we just finished it late last night but so because the game's always put it on monday night well this year on the calendar monday was new year's usually you have like 10 days because Monday is yeah. maybe like on a, or the, the New Year's Day is like on a Wednesday and it's not going to be until the next Monday. You have like six days <laughs> between this game. So the window is much tighter than usual. So it's going to come fast and um, it'll be it'll be interesting. I am not going to be down there. I'll be in you guys neck of the woods this week uh, at AFCA convention. So that'll be that'll be interesting. <laughs> but the window. Yeah, just a scheduling quirk this year. 
I remember last year I did a coaching confidential for Georgia TCU and it was a lot easier because we had a normal calendar, but we had to pull this one off in like a day and a half. And that's, that's not the easiest thing in the world, but we, I think we ended up talking to 10 coaches um, about this game and uh, they always have interesting thoughts. So. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I wasn't going to ask you too much about the game, but now I want to, um, because, yeah. because I am fascinated by the contrast of styles and I hope that, and the contrasting of coaching personalities between mm-hmm. Jim Harbaugh and Kalen DeBoer. And what I hope happens is that they just tra- stay true to themselves and try to win it their way so that we can just like see it play out on Monday night. Is that essentially what, what you guys got from talking to these coaches uh, throughout the course of this week? Yeah, a lot of them said the same thing you did. Is like, you know, one of the coaches said this is, and this is one of the quotes I have in the story, is this is the first time I've been excited to watch a championship game, like in a long time. <laughs> because for a long time, it's like either Georgia or Alabama, you kind of know, and it's like, you know, what they're going to bring. And a lot of times there's not a stylistic contrast. It's like, you know, here's Georgia, and here's a different type of version of Georgia. Here's Alabama <laughs> and a slightly different version of Alabama. <laughs> and you kind of know what you're going to get. I mean, this is a true contrast. I mean, I was frustrated in 2011 that that Oklahoma State got squeezed out of the title game uh, for instead of, uh, you know, instead of our Alabama went in, got to play LSU again, rather than LSU, which had like the greatest resume in the history of college football, um, loses the rematch. But LSU, Oklahoma State would have been kind of that, you know, where they didn't have a lot of offense, but they just had all this beef, honey badger. Uh, you know, Jordan Jefferson, all these guys. And then you had, you know, Justin Blackman, Brandon Whedon, Joseph Randall, this like sick Oklahoma State team um, that I'd covered all year. So um, it was uh, this will be fun because you really don't know. I mean, uh, Washington is a pass first team like people sort of make that mistake about Tennessee football and think that they just throw it around when they actually lean on the run and, and their their ratios are pretty even. Washington, I think there's five teams in the country that have run the ball less than them. And the coaches were laughing. They were like, you can drop eight, you can go too high, man. And they're matter. still gonna they're still gonna throw and they're still gonna dice you up. He's like, they and then one of the coaches was like, Yeah, they they throw in situations where they should not throw. <laughs> and they're still really good at it because <laughs> they run a lot of max protect. They run those three receivers, Polk, McMillan, and Roma Dunze, a Bolitnikov finalist, and then Penix. He just gets the ball out. I think they've given up 11 sacks in 14 games. And his pocket presence, I mean, I was talking to coaches about this. There was some Brady stuff happening uh, in the Sugar Bowl where they'd have a free rusher, which is very rare against Washington, which won the Joe Moore Award this year. And he just very little wasted motion, dipping his shoulder, making a guy miss, setting his platform, and then dropping a dime. It was the Penix performance, having seen it in person. That was one of the best college quarterback performances in a single game I've seen in a long time. That was unbelievable. I want to, I want to drop a little Easter egg here for everybody real quickly. Just I'm going to roll a grenade in and then we can move on real quickly. (laughs) I have, I have heard going back to that 2011 matchup. I have heard so many stories about, about the Alabama coaching staff learning about Jarrett Lee's academic status before the LSU coaching staff did. (laughs) (laughs) That that sounds about right. Which is insane. If you understand the context of that comment. Carry on, Steve Cavendish. <laughs> well, so, uh, back to back to Washington. I'm I'm fascinated by by something kind of media wise, which is, do you think? I mean that that performance was so good. Pinnock was Pinnock was so on. Adunze was. I mean that whole receiving core was fantastic. Um, do you think if if the if the Heisman and Bolitnikov Award uh, votes had been taken after that game? Uh, which which had such a platform, uh, such a national platform that 
it would it would have made a difference. Maybe Blitnikoff, no. I mean, Heisman, yes. Heisman, yeah, Penix mm-hmm. probably would have won the Heisman, I, I think. Blitnikoff, no, because Marvin Harrison Jr. is is special. And production aside, people recognize the limitations of that offense and yet how great he is and how uncoverable uh, he is. I think Odunze is much better at contested catches uh, than Marvin yeah. Harrison is. Um, but in terms of just like, you can't cover this dude. Like, you can sort of cover. And I think the scheme... Like if you put Marvin Harrison in Washington scheme, I mean, oh my gosh! Yep. Like I can't even, <laughs> I can't even comprehend that. Um, I voted for Jaden Daniels. I think the the production that he had was just insane. I think his numbers passing matched up pretty dead on with Bo Nix and Michael Penix and all these other guys. It was very very similar. But then you added like a fourteen hundred yard rush, rush, rushing season on top of it, and it's just like that's. That's insane. That is insane. And I, so for me, I, I it wasn't his fault that they lost basically any of those games. So I I I uh, I don't love voting for a guy whose team lost what four games. But for me, when your passing numbers are basically even, and you add a fourteen hundred yard rushing season on top of it, it was it was too much for me. But I think the voters in general uh, probably would have voted for Penix if the if the uh, Heisman voting happened after. I, I I also voted for Daniels, and it wasn't his fault. They 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 the defense gave up fifty plus to Ole Miss mm-hmm. or um, the Alabama game where he was in the game and they were in the game until he was out of the game. Yeah, uh, the only real game that they kind of struggled in offensively was the first the second half against Florida State. Yeah, in week one, and again they won ten games this year. So I, I agreed it was it was hard to not vote for him. I really did struggle. I vote for the Blitnikoff, and I really struggled with Adunze versus Harrison because I think Harrison is objectively the better football player. Um, yes, I agree. And I really was like, man, but I think this guy has done more for his team with Adunze. I voted for Harrison, to be clear. Uh, but I, it's hard to like. I think Adunze just the, had a better season, but Harrison's a better player. So what do you do with that? I don't. I don't like. I don't. It's know. always tough. There's always yeah. a few situations like that. Like when you get, I, I, you know, if you have a G five receiver in there that has like 400 more yards, I'm kind of like, eh. But when you have a power five receiver that like maybe benefited from his offense or being behind in games where they gotta just sort of chuck it, it there's a lot of context in a lot of these things. And I think it's both defensible. I mean, same thing. Like I had some colleagues who voted for Penix number one. I that's that's fine. I don't like I don't begrudge them. Um, but you know, as for the guy who voted uh, JJ McCarthy number one, there's a lot of JJ McCarthy conversation in our coaching <laughs> confidential. Uh, yeah, there's there's some, there's some skepticism among the coaches about about JJ. Which is, I believe which... the quote. I believe the quote that's in there uh, as it stands is uh, you know. Uh, JJ McCarthy, not that dude. <laughs> wow. Well, and, yeah, you know, ask, Al- ask Alabama's defense with five minutes to go. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you know, uh, maybe I think one of the coaches was like, maybe Kyle Shanahan likes this guy, but I was like, I don't know what Jim, Jim Harbaugh is talking about with JJ McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, uh, you've written about the December calendar. I've talked about this for three years now. December in college football is completely broken. Um, the NFL, for all of its lack of charm that the college game brings to the table, they do have it figured out from a content schedule plan. <laughs> They've got it figured out. They know how to capture your attention every four weeks in the offseason with something big that affects the game. And college football decided, and, and it's really not their fault necessarily, that, that we're going to do it all in like a three-week period of time. Our postseason, our free agency, our draft, every single thing happens basically at the same period of time. Then we're going to add playoff games next year to the calendar. And I don't know how December can keep taking on water without there being some adjustments. The problem is, is they're not really obvious solutions what is you know you've written about this 
What are the coaches' perspective on this? Is there movement coming? Is there a way to spread this stuff out, whether it's portal, whether it's signing day? What is the ultimate end game with the month of December for college fans and, and media for that matter? I don't really know. I think if I was, if I was, I mean, part of this is college football's fault because they were so resistant to change for so long that then they got forced into all these decisions by the courts, you know, with the portal situation. I think if it's me, you know, the early signing period came five years ago, six years ago, I think it was 17. If it was me, I would say move the early signing period up to August, have like a week, 10 days before high school season start where guys can sign and have a bunch of outs. If your position coach leaves, your head coach leaves, gets fired, whatever. A bunch of outs for the kids who sign in August, like a lot, and make it pretty easy to get out of your letter of intent. It has to be something material that happens more than a change of heart, but have that. What I don't think you can do is just you can sign anytime because what's going to happen is you're going to get guys hotboxed on official visits, and that's not fair to the kids. Um, where you go on a visit on the weekend and they're like, lock you in a room with the coaches and like, you got to sign, you got to sign, or your scholarship's done, or your, your yeah. scholarship's not here. You, you, can't, you can't have that. <laughs> so if it was me, I'd move it to August and have a lot of outs. Then with the portal, I think what you could do is have two weeks, basically like right when the season ends, uh, the regular season, I would say going into championship week, two weeks where you can enter the portal, but you can't go on visits and you can't commit to schools. So you have coaches have a, have a sense of who are we losing? What is our roster going to actually look like? And let's have some time to scout and look and you can talk to kids but like they can't go on visits yet and you can't really commit, but you can talk to kids. So it's like a portal exit period. And then after those two weeks, when you get a sense of what your roster is, then leading into this, the winter semester and holidays and the playoff games and all that stuff, because you can't really fix that. Then you can do your visits. You can do the portal incoming. You can still enter the portal if you're a late, you know, late guy, but all this sort of all of it happening at once is, is not difficult. And that doesn't fix everything. But I think it makes it a little better. Because you're still recruiting high school kids in the middle of all this, and that makes it pretty difficult. Um, uh, you know, and then I think what would happen is if you have the super early signing, you're not going to get 90% of the kids that are going to sign, where you've essentially killed signing day, which was sort of a college football holiday. I think you, if you move back to August, then you sort of bring back the February signing, where if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, you know, you know then you can get it done and you can't get screwed by numbers late or getting pushed out when something happens or whatever, but you know, okay. And then uh, in February, you're going to have a lot higher percentage of kids sign and you've sort of commanded back that calendar piece a little bit for the sport. Um, and that might help. So we'll see. The One of the things that we're talking about with – this December congestion is sort of the the lack of the the lack of any sort of oversight over the whole sport. The NCAA doesn't really have it anymore, uh, and the play the playoffs and and the bowl system are are somewhat at odds with each other now. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to put any of this back in the box and kind of have like some sort of some sort of body that that controls at least controls the schedule. Make them employees. Here we go. <laughs> That's what it is. That if you make players employees, that fixes like eighty five percent of the issues. The roster movement 
Well, if you're under contract, you're getting paid. People are okay with, you know, if you're being paid and you, you signed a contract, it's fine if you tell kids what to do. But if you're not being paid, this is why you've gotten to a point where it's literally free agency, multiple transfers, multiple transfers in the midseason because you're not paying kids. They're not employees. You can't enforce a non-compete. You can't do that. And, like, the courts have decided this. And anything you do to restrict a kid, he's going to say, you're restricting my earning potential. You're restricting my earning potential. You're going to get sued, and you're going to lose because there's a, um, a pretty strong precedent. Okay? So that's just what it is. Bull opt-outs, put it in the contract. If you're paying kids, then you can't just not show up for work, right? Or else you're gonna there's going to be financial penalties for that. Like, a lot of these issues were fixed if you just make guys employees. Now there's a collective bargaining piece of that that is really difficult um you know i talked to uh, jim cavale who used to work for well he's one of the founders of influencer but he's trying to put together essentially a players uh union and it's it's a complicated process but like something resembling collective bargaining has to happen because you have the charlie baker conversation and schools are talking about all these different things and nobody's really engaging with the players to say okay what do you guys want what is okay with you guys they do these focus groups and then they come out of it the the athletes always coincidentally agree with the agree with the administrators well there's a lot of athletes that don't want to be employees there's a lot of athletes that are okay with the trust and it's like you know there's all these tax implications and being an employee is difficult and it's like if somebody wants to give me eighty thousand more dollars i'm not going to say well but i got to pay taxes on it so I don't know. That's tough. So like, that's just not revenue. Yeah, I'm always revenue sharing is coming. It's coming. I'm always yeah. Some form of revenue sharing is coming, whether it's direct, indirect. But this current system where you put the onus on fans and boosters to pay your athletes while you continue to cash checks and keep all the TV money, which is the real money yourself, not sustainable, not ethical, not moral, not right. And people are recognizing this, and the courts are pushing college football by force to a more equitable place, which is good. But this, this limbo that we're in now, it sucks for everybody. Um, and, but I think we'll get to a place that makes a little bit more sense, you know, in five or 10 years. I'm going to, I'm going to push back on one thing Steve said, which is that the playoff and the bowl system are at odds. I would totally disagree. Uh, all that money laundering is still taking place. So I'm not going (laughs) to, Oh oh, no, Uh, right now it is, but I mean, with with a 12, it's still coming. Oh, but I mean, Next the year, playoff is killing the, the bowls, only yeah. the, 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 the Rose Bowl. The, 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 next, the only problem the with the Rose Bowl are... is they don't have enough corporate suites and no <laughs> home sta- and no home stadiums in college football have corporate suites. And you can't put on a bowl game or a playoff game, apparently, without any corporate fucking suites. You got to have that to put on a great playoff game, apparently. And so that's why it's never going to go to home sites. But as much as uh, but as much as you have had like, as fun as you've had with like the Cheez-Its Bowl and with, you know, the, the, the pop tarts bowl and and whatever this year uh those lower bowls uh, I, I mean w- if you have if you have home games in that first round it, the the teams that the, the teams that are gonna be left to play in those lesser bowls I mean like who's gonna be playing in the Liberty Bowl we're gonna have like five and seven teams in the Liberty Bowl next year wasn't it, that Memphis versus? Yeah, that's pretty much what you got already. That's exactly. Okay. What <laughs> I mean, is Memphis just going to have a home game Iowa like, the Hawaii, like the Hawaii Bowl? That's the, that's how you get uh, that's how yeah. you get people to Memphis in uh, in in December. Da- David, much. here's my here's my question for you, David. Here's a better version of this. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's December 22nd and your kids are at home and you have nothing else to watch on television, are you still going to watch Memphis and Iowa State in the Independence Bowl or the yes. Liberty Bowl? And the answer, I'll answer for you. The answer is yes. You're still going to yes. watch. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Uh, okay. Let me ask you this. What What is the right question to ask about the coverage of Nico Iamaleava? Because Peyton Manning is the only number one overall recruit that has like gone to to Knoxville in like 30 years. They've been a lot of quarterbacks that have been hyped. A lot mm-hmm. of guys that have gotten four-star hype or Brent Schaefer transfer hype or whatever. But like Tyler Bray, Eric Ainge, Josh Dobbs, you can go down the list, Garantino. None of these guys were number one overall in the nation. Good. And mm-hmm. none of them ever looked like they could deliver on the hype. So what is the right way to talk about Nico in your opinion or cover him? I mean, I think just be fair with expectations that he's going to walk in and be a Heisman candidate. I think people would love to see that. I'm not even going to rule that out necessarily, but it's not fair to just like expect that. These things take time. He's going to, she showed up flashes against a really good defense um, that you can feel really optimistic. But I think expectations are always hard. And when you come to a place like Tennessee, that's doing well, but like still pines for something bigger you are going to be saddled with like the savior label. Like Hendon Hooker took them to big places, but they didn't get to the promised land. Right. And, and Nico for better or worse, there's a good chance. He's your starting quarterback for a playoff game next year. Like this team is probably on the border of a playoff and they're almost certainly a playoff team. If Nico is special. And so you're going to be in that mix, but you know, I don't know if there's specifically a question you got to ask. I think it's just about expectations because I get it. Like Tennessee fans are frustrated. They want to win. Um, I-, I found it crazy. All the consternation of this year in a down year, in a rebuilding year where your quarterback doesn't really get better and all his targets get hurt and you win eight games and people are like, we got to get this guy out of here. I'm just <laughs> like, what are we talking about? What are we doing? This is crazy. So memories of the goldfish, David. Memories of the goldfish. It's just like, do you remember what down years like were the last 15 (laughs) years? Like, yes, Tennessee took a step back this year, and there were about a hundred real reasons, not excuses, reasons why that happened. And I don't think the coaching staff was like hardly any of those reasons. So, you know, it's it's crazy. You're excited, you're excited for this national championship game this year. Uh, and I think a lot of people are uh the the ratings are pretty good for uh for at least the first game and then kind of tailed off uh in the sugar bowl i think because (laughs) that game got really really late um what is it that what what is it about this other than just uh other than just we don't have georgia and bama to 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 punch uh in here this year uh what is it about this year you feel like Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that it's like a portal thing. I think it's literally just like all of your blue bloods were replacing quarterbacks and some of them were okay. None of them were great. Kyle McCord is currently at Syracuse. Jalen Milrow is good, but flawed. Georgia just lost the one game they couldn't lose. Um, I, 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 they were the best team all season. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's as simple as a portal situation. I think it's just, uh, yeah, we'll see. I think Georgia still might be the best team in the country. Uh, what Jim Harbaugh, we most people common sense say that he's he's done no matter what happens on Monday evening with the college game. I, I used to think that. I'm not so sure. Anymore. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> u- ultimately, what what is it that because like I struggled 
covering Jim Harbaugh for many years, trying to convince people that he is so much better than people thought. He was just overexposed. And when you get overexposed, yeah. generally people like to hate on you a little bit. And he hadn't really won the big game. And now there's, I mean, it's like three straight playoff trips, a national championship game, a Super Bowl for crying out loud. Like this guy is clearly an extraordinary mm-hmm. football coach, but he just can't get out of his own way every step of the way. What What is ultimately, you know, they win the championship on Monday night, let's say. What is ultimately the legacy and the story around Jim Harbaugh? Is it Belichickian where there's just different layers and chapters? Like what, what is it that we talk about with, with, with Jim Harbaugh? Uh, I think in general he did, if especially wins, if he wins the uh, championship in his last year, he did what they thought he was going to do. Like when he came there, if you had told me he's going to win a national championship, I would have said like, yeah, okay. Yeah, probably. Like, I would say that's the odds are pretty good. And he's pretty close to it. If he doesn't win the championship, I still think he's the guy who revived Michigan football, who flipped the most important rivalry. Three three games in a row is really impressive. And yeah, these aren't peak Urban Meyer, Ohio State teams. There's not, uh, you know, a, a, a freak of nature at quarterback, you know, slinging it around. But they're still pretty good teams. CJ was pretty good for two of those games. That's true. And you got to the playoff, uh, you know, what, three times now? And you finally won a game. So it's not to say you're playing with house money, but like you did as close to without finally doing it what you thought they would do when they got there. So I think his he will have a his legacy is pretty safe. And I don't think the Michigan people care at all about the suspensions. No, no, no. I don't know. None of that stuff matters. All right, well, we'll let you go on this because I, I do think Michigan is the most dominant team of the season from start to finish and probably is the most complete team and is probably the better team going into this matchup. They're a slight favorite, a couple of points, mm-hmm. four points going into the matchup. But there is a Joe Burrow LSU type of offensive element to the to the Washington Huskies here. We've talked about the contrast in styles. Um, I think there is some uh, poetic balance to the night we all learned Jim Harbaugh was the Michigan coach. I was at the Sugar Bowl with with all your colleagues <laughs> uh, between Ohio State and Michigan, or Ohio State and Alabama, and Alabama mm-hmm. got beaten the first night of the playoff. And now we're here at the end of the, the 10-year era with Jim Harbaugh maybe going out on top and maybe going to the NFL. Uh, final, final pick on Monday night for you, David. Quarterbacks usually decide these games. And if you look at the teams that Michigan has played, Ohio State didn't have the quarterback to beat them. Penn State didn't have the quarterback to beat them. Alabama didn't have the quarterback to beat them. Washington does. Quarterbacks win these games. They decide these games. And one of these teams has a special player at quarterback. The other one does not. And Washington is good enough on the lines to win this game. They're not going to get bullied. Um, they can. Their lines are good enough to do what they need to do. Michigan's going to run the ball. I think it's going to be a, a relatively high-scoring game. But give me Washington outright. Can you like Texas A&M fans get to watch Texas almost do it. Ohio State, <laughs> Ohio State fans get to watch Michigan almost do it. I, I kind of agree with you. I'm taking the Huskies mm-hmm. as well. I, Steve, Steve can't stop tweeting about Washington football. So <laughs> I, think, I think we're all taking the Huskies here. David, thank you so much. Continue the great coverage, man. It's awesome. As usual, everybody go out there, pay for good journalism over at The Athletic as well. Oven, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. That was David Ubbin of The Athletic, of course, Lamestream Sports, brought to you by our brand new partner, 8th and Roast, over there on, that's right, you guessed it, 8th Avenue. Uh, they also have one on Charlotte, of course, in the airport as well. But more importantly, you can buy their beans 
that are ethically sourced and and paid for at a higher premium to make sure they are better for you all across the city at grocery stores near you. So go check out. Also, a great place to go get some work done. Little food. You got the bacon, egg, and cheese croissant in there. It's delicious. So go check that out as well. So uh, Eighth and Roast, welcome. Go to Eighth and Roast. <laughs> the, the next evolution of the coffee bean. Um, go, go, <laughs> go check them out. Uh, okay. So I wanted to get to Vrabel real fast with Rain Carthon because there's just more smoke, more rumors. People just, I, I don't, I, at some point, I think this is like we all heard something and everyone's just sort of taking that one thing and now extrapolating what they think is happening around the entire world of Rain Carthon and Mike Vrabel. I think everyone's overreacting. I did a, a an entire breakdown of this on a football show on Thursday, myself and Stoney Keeley. So go go check that out as to what we think will actually happen in in this situation. But I wanted to ask you, what is you know the rules of engagement here on quote unquote rumors? It, it, I think number one is it not that Steve, you have to consider the motivation of the story itself first and foremost if you are trying to figure out what exactly is going on between two humans that nobody can source an information. No one can source what's actually happening between Mike Vrabel and Rand Carthon and Amy Adams Strunk. These are private conversations and relationships. So motivation, is that not the number one thing you have to consider? hundred uh, percent. And you, if you pay if you have all paid attention to how NFL news has flown out of flowed out of uh, flown flowed. I think flowed. they both work. Uh, it, it, yeah. Uh, out of the Titans this year. What do we know? Uh, if we if we hear something uh, from Diane Rossini of the Athletic, formerly of ESPN, it's likely from the Vrabel camp. If we hear something from uh, from Sheff Schefter or Rappaport Land, it's likely from the Carthon camp. Uh, there are you know Amy Adams Strunk uh, has been has stayed largely on the sidelines in these things, um, but there's but that's not to say that. Uh, that's not to say that she might not tip her hand here about which way this is uh, about which way this is going to go with the future of Rabel or, you know, Carthon or whatever else. But but you should you should look at the sourcing and you should think about it that way, um, because all of these folks have vested interests that, you know, they're they're talking about futures they're talking about uh, jobs. And I, I just think that, you know. You th there are no. There are no clean kind of there are no kind of clean stories in this in this kind of uh, in this kind of news environment. So a, a story about the organization being fully behind Mike Vrabel, for example, which that that leaked out a couple of weeks ago. Like, what's the motivation behind that? Well, the motivation behind that would be to quiet things down, would be to reestablish. Uh, uh, confirm the commitment to the head coach and send a message to Vrabel's camp from ownership, let's say, that says, "Hey, look, this is this is all just in the this is all just on social media." Mike Vrabel, of course, this week was very adamant that he had no desire to leave uh, in terms of how committed he is to staying here. But here's another thing: um, the simplest the sim this is Occam's razor, right? The simplest explanation is usually the correct explanation, which is like Mike Vrabel. The story cannot be, if you think about the leaks that are out here, and some of this is from the Boston side of things, right? The Patriots side of things. Some of those guys are credible. Some of them, who knows? Like Vrabel wants out versus Vrabel wants total control. It, it can't be both of those things, right? <laughs> it has to be only like, and, and he may change his mind on those things, but it cannot be both. 
It, it can only be one of those things. And and, and don't underestimate. Uh, don't underestimate. Like we saw this, for instance, in the um, in the White Sox story here a few weeks ago. Don't underestimate just chaos agents in all of this. Yes. You know when 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 shit breaks on on sports radio. Uh, be you, you, it's okay to be suspicious of that. It's yep. okay to sit there and go, "Wow, the uh, the guys on on was it WEI or whatever yeah, yeah. whatever the big Boston sports talk station is? Uh, those guys are talking a lot about Vrabel and and you know they they've got connections and they know Patriot people who are talking to Vrabel and whatever else. You know, there's a lot of wish casting that goes on in these kinds of stories. Uh, you know, people people seeing what they want to see and projecting that out there. Uh, particularly if you have to sit behind the mic for four hours a day. Well, and again, uh, we, we laid out every single sort of conclusion in this Choose Your Own Adventure saga for Vrabel, Carthon, and Amy Adams Strunk uh, on a football show, so I'm not going to go into all the details again. But again, I heard stuff in camp, uh, that that, and I can't report specifics, but I said on that show all season long, I think it is fair to ask the question about how collaborative this relationship really is. But at the same time, as we look for motivation and we look for contradiction in this story, the simplest the simplest explanation is Amy Adams Strunk doesn't have a whole lot of expert football people in her circle. The NFL might have leaned on her a little bit to to pick Ran. Mike and Ran are new to each other. Ran's a new new to the general manager role, and they had growing pains getting to learn how to work together. That is the most simplest explanation for for all of this, and there's a good chance that's all this was. And it doesn't mean that the stories weren't real at the beginning, that these little kernels, these stories, these nuggets, these off-the-record background things that people like me and Kaharski and you know all these other people have heard, there's a chance that there's truth at the foundation of all this stuff, but that it gets blown out of proportion by the, the national folks who are, in fact, looking for the clicks. And things are, things are rarely as simple as they seem. Uh, things, things are very... Uh, the Vrabel situation is complicated because he's a he's a well liked guy among the fan base. Uh, he is he has been respected by Amy uh, Amy Adams Strunk here in the past. Carthon, you're right, is developing a, has been developing a relationship with him here now for what nine months? Or I'm sorry, for for twelve almost, months. almost a year. Yeah, yeah. And so all of these things, all of these things mean that that is very it, it, it if you hear a carthon wants rabel out sort of story my guess is that it, it is that those things are not nearly as as cut and dry as yeah. as, as as it seems and I, that there's usually an edge uh, uh there, there's an edge of truth to it but also that there is something behind those stories it's some kind of motivation Yes. Consider the motivations, consider apparent contradictions. And then uh, I think, again, the simplest explanation, generally, the easiest uh, explanation, it doesn't mean they're not, to your point, it doesn't mean that, you know, Vrabel's not, like his relationship with New England is a complicated part of this process and a complicated piece of context. But the simplest explanation is generally the, the right one. And I think that's what we've got here. But it doesn't change the fact that there's some kernels of truth to what what took place, and and I'll uh, cite, cite Kaharski here because he said it on his show, which is that this the most recent one, 
he sort of tried to vet the source a little bit, the guy who's doing all this stuff. I'm not going to name him, but that, uh, that he basically said, Hey, I tried to, I, I went down and, and kind of did some digging into this guy and I, I, I didn't see what I wanted to see. And so therefore I'm not taking it too seriously. I'm paraphrasing there, but go check out the Paul Karski podcast on the full 40 sports network brought to you by uh, Jaspers, by the way. <laughs> oh, wow. Hey, look, hi Jaspers. Um, I will say I will say this. Uh, it, I'm 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 glad you pimped the the uh, Kaharski podcast uh, because Paul Paul has as long of a view of of the of this franchise and of the players that are involved as anybody. Uh, and and if anybody can sort of dig around uh, and and get to, if maybe not the bottom of, but but certainly a a, a proper perspective on things, it's Paul. Yep. So. All right. Um, that just about does it. Thanks you to thank you to David Ubbin. Enjoy the national championship game. I know you're clearly rooting for and picking the Washington Huskies. If ever since ever, ever since you spouted Oregon <laughs> bullshit all year long and Washington slapped it back every single time, I, I will, have become a Huskies fan. I I, I will not. The I, college well, football sh- the college football intelligentsia didn't want Washington here. They haven't oh, wanted them here all year long. I want them here. I want no, them to win. No, I want no, I'm openly you rooting. You wanted Bo Nix in Oregon. I will you not stand first of all, I will not stand for this Bo Nix slander. That will not that will not be allowed <laughs> on this podcast. Uh but I, I absolutely am rooting for Washington to win the national championship over Jim Harbaugh in the last game of the entire Pac-12 conference. Yes, I am but, absolutely but, but, rooting for Washington. By the way, I I don't know, I don't know if uh your group texts were were similar to mine when when the when the players were known uh and, and people were che- people were cheering for uh, having a hard time picking uh picking Alabama or Michigan there in that game, you know, who to root for. And a bunch of people said, you know, I, you can't let you can't let Michigan win the national championship. You can't you can't have Harbaugh winning the national championship. It would be the most insufferable thing in the world. And the the the, the refrain was, but what if he lost in the final? Wouldn't even that better. be better? Even better. E- even um, better. You also have to stop tweeting about your diehard Washington fandom until you can say the name of the quarterback correct because you messed up his name in our conversation with David. So I didn't say anything what about I- it. I was going to wait until after to make sure at the very end of the show, everyone knows I, I know the that you couldn't even say the name of the quarterback, correct? It's not you, Michael Pennick. It's Michael Penix. It's an you, X. You people, you college football <laughs> so-called experts. You thank you. Thank you for listening. Swing by your local 8th and Roast location for a great cup of Joe. Pick up the beans at a grocery store near you. Special thanks to Steve Cavendish, to David Ubb, and I am Braden Gall. Go Huskies! Thank you for listening.